Amen. If you have your Bibles, go with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. Book of Ephesians, chapter 2. Let's encourage you. The way you're going to walk right through a couple verses here this morning. We'll spend all of our time in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2. Um, we'll walk through it, explain it, apply it. It's not how we usually do things. As we've been walking through Ephesians now for about uh, 15, 16 weeks, something like that. So, I want to though, this morning, I'm not going to give a big long intro, we're just going to jump right in, kind of for sake of time, um, but uh, we're going to jump right into Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Let's do this. It says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And He says, by grace, you have been saved. And we're going to stop there this morning. Let's pray. Father, pray as we study Your Word this morning that we would... Uh, that we would see the desperate state in which we were rescued from, and we would see the greatness and the mighty work of your hand in rescuing us. And Father, I give you praise for that. Let any words that come from my mouth that are not a few, let those be burned up this morning, never to be remembered again, Father. Let us, let us be spoken to by your word. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right. So we've spent two weeks already working through verses 1, 2, and 3. And for some of you remember when we worked through uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, the good news of Ecclesiastes doesn't come until like the very end. And I think good preaching is understanding, like good teaching is understanding that the text, we have to present the text that's chosen in the fashion in which it's like in in. And what it's trying to say in that particular text. And if we're not careful, we can jump too quick to the conclusion and miss the weightiness of those particular verses. Because right, we want to feel good, right? We want to hear the good news. And, and in some ways, we need to hear the good news. But in other ways, we also need to linger sometimes on the bad news. We need to understand that there's no need for good news unless there was first bad news. And so what's happened in Ephesians chapter 2 is that Paul, and we've tried to for the past couple weeks linger in verses 1, 2, and 3 to understand the bad news, if you will. And so what I want to do, and what Paul I think is doing here, is this is kind of the first major point, if you will, is to keep at the forefront of your mind that at one time you were utterly helpless and destined for destruction. Now I know that's a wonderful thing to like think of immediately, right? Wake up Sunday morning, you were destined for destruction. 
But the reality is that's true. That we were dead in our sins and headed for destruction. If you, were a, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've been redeemed by his blood, that at one time you were utterly helpless and destined for destruction. This is clearly what Paul wants us to keep in mind Keep in the back of our mind. He, look again at verse 5, of what we're going to look at today. He says, even when we were dead in our trespasses. So it's like Paul's like saying you were dead in your trespasses, dead in your sins, following the course of the world. And then he says, but God, and all this good news about God. And then he's like, just in case you've forgotten, in the past 10 seconds since I said it, you were dead in your trespasses. We've talked about this is the, the plight of man. That there was not and is not an area of our lives that has been left untouched by sin. That sin has marred every area of all of our lives. And he talks about, I'm just kind of rehashing, if you will, verses 1, 2, and 3 for just a quick moment here. But he talks about how we were living, walking dead. Like we were dead. Now, obviously, we were physically still alive, but we were dead. We were Dead, think of it this way, we were slaves to the course of the world, slaves to our own evil desires in such a way that it was right for Paul to say, you're dead. If that's not life, you're dead. And that we had convinced ourselves so well, yet that we were still alive. But Paul says, you were dead. I want to talk to a couple different people for just a second here. One group, those of you with a good memory, if you're a follower of Jesus, those of you with a good memory of your wicked past, think about this with me for just a second. The world finds the mirage of life in the pursuit of happiness, right? If I could just be happy, then I'll be really living. So for those of you who can recollect well the, the past you had before Jesus, you, I'm sure, can think, ah, if I could just obtain this, I'll be happy and I'll be living. The world also, you also f- probably found the mirage of life in unhindered sexual expression. This is common in our culture today. If I could just be who I want to be sexually, then I will be really living. There's many different ways in which we thought living in our own lives was based upon something else other than living in Christ. Now for those of you with a clean past, right? So those of you with a, who can't remember that much wickedness prior to Jesus. For those of you who maybe were redeemed at a very young age. I want to encourage you a couple ways. <laughs> One is that you probably did this too. You probably just didn't realize it. Like you probably sought life somewhere else other than Jesus and you didn't realize it. Or maybe God spared you before some of this wickedness developed. I think of the age in which I got saved. I just hadn't had time yet. You know what I'm saying? Like it just hadn't happened yet. I, I have, my, the devising of my, of my evilness had not yet come to fruition. Like it had not yet developed, if you will, like speech develops. But either way, if you can't remember that much evilness, you still have the propensity to be evil. And God spared you in some ways from that. I also want to encourage you this way, is that instead of trying to search for some stark difference and radical turning point in your past, 
Just look at how much you were tempted with evil this past week. And that should shine some kind of light on the time before you were a follower of Jesus Christ. So in verses 1, 2, and 3, he's laying this out to keep this in the back of your mind. Matter of fact, don't even keep it in the back of your mind. Keep it in the front of your mind. You were slaves to the world. What he literally means is that we were following the commands of the evil world. He talks about we were slaves to ourselves. Like, if you look at verse 3, we lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out, he says, the desires of the body and the desires of the mind. What he literally means there is that the commands of the body, the commands of the mind, you were a slave to those things. You followed the commands of your body and mind. And so this is the situation, this is the plight, this is, this is where we were at, and we were headed for destruction because of that, right? Because the only thing that can make that right, that God can still be just, is to pour His wrath out on these people who don't like Him, will not follow Him, and are in utter rebellion against Him. The only thing that He can do to be a just God is to pour His wrath out on such things. Now Paul, what he's getting ready to do for us is Paul's throwing the bleakness of the human plight and the lavishness of God's mercy and love into this incredibly beautiful, dramatic juxtaposition. He's taking this plight that we were in, this helplessness that we were in, and putting it here, And then he's taking this mercy and love of God and putting it here and saying, look at the two. Look at the difference between the two things. Look what has happened, what God did, what God had to do. And Paul is saying, make no mistake and do not overlook it. At just the right moment, when we were helpless, God rescued us. I think any logical person is going to ask the question, why? Why? At just the right moment, we were evil and rebellion against God, dead, following the course of the world, following the commands of our flesh. Why? Why would God rescue a people? I mean, He would have been just in simply sending all of us to hell. Also, I don't know about you, but I tend to think of God as oftentimes some distant being who sovereignly directs a plan, and we're just something simply convenient to that plan. That's kind of where I struggle sometimes. Thinking about why. Why would He do this? I'm sure God is sovereign, sure He has a plan. But where does this plan come from? Where where does it come from? And I think that's what Paul takes us to. It comes from something much deeper than God just simply having a plan to work out a few things to make himself look glorious. It's much deeper than that. And that's where Paul takes us to. And that's where I want our minds to go this morning. And that is this. It is from the very character of God that our redemption comes. It is from the very character of God. Of God, It comes from who He is. Not just an idea that He had, but it comes from something innate to Himself. Something 
inside. We talked about our evil, our inclination towards evil, this kind of natural desire for evil. God has this kind of this natural inclination towards doing good towards his people. And Paul says this in verse 4. After talking about you were dead in your sins, I want to repeat this again. There are, diff- there are not different degrees of dead. Dead is dead. And Paul says you were dead. And then he says in verse 4, but God. But God. I, I don't know about you, but like, I like to linger on but God, right? Just kind of pause there for just a second. But God. Like, but God. I don't, that's just, it's a big but, right? But God. It's not, Paul doesn't say that we were dead and all this stuff, but then someone said a prayer, or someone joined a church, or someone abstained from alcohol, or some measure of being a good person, or not because you first loved him, or not even because you made yourself available to him. Paul says, you and I were dead, but God. And now Paul begins to describe God's response to the seemingly helpless and hopeless plight into which sin, the flesh, the mind, and the demonic world has plunged humanity. We're in this problem, and Paul's going to talk about here how God responded to that problem. What prompted God to act so freely and mercifully on our behalf? What would cause God to do such a thing when he would be just to say, your punishment for your sin is rightfully hell? Paul says it's none other than the very character of God. This is just who he is. This is who he is, and thank God this is who he is. It's the very essence of God that births our It's from the very essence of God that births our redemption. The very fabric of His being desires and plans our redemption. If you want to write something down, write that down. The very fabric of His being desires and plans and carries out our redemption. It comes from who He is, not just a plan. We're not simply some means to God's cosmic end. We're not simply a cog in God's universal machine. We're more than that. So the first thing is Paul's bringing forth this character for us to see that would birth forth this redemption is that God's mercy gives opportunity for God's redemption. God's mercy gives opportunity, brings forth opportunity for God's redemption. The idea of mercy here is like a, is is kind of a because he is, because he is, because he is merciful, this is what has happened. If there, if God were not, I want you to see this, if God were not merciful, then nothing else would matter when it comes to our redemption because there would be none. If God were not merciful, 
Because God, let me back up, because God is a merciful God, He can accommodate redemption. Redemption comes from, is given opportunity for, from His mercy. Because God is merciful, God desires then to extend mercy. He doesn't have to, but it's because of who He is, He extends mercy. Without mercy, He can love us all He wants, but if He can't show us mercy, then He can't do anything about that which He loves. He must have mercy, and He must have it perfectly and express it perfectly for us. This is not just a New Testament concept. Old Testament, early Jewish writings and such, but particularly Old Testament, talks about God's mercy. God is said to be abundantly merciful. And if you study the Old Testament, this is one of the reasons we can't ignore the Old Testament. It's so valuable in helping us see some of these things, usually in beautiful picture. But what happens if you study the Old Testament, I'll give a few examples here in in a moment. But God is said to be abundantly merciful precisely within the context where He might justifiably pour out His wrath on those people whom He chooses to give mercy to. Let me say that another way. God shows mercy to His people when He should have shown justice and given them wrath. And you see that time and time and time again throughout the Old Testament. This doesn't just happen in the New. He's given us this beautiful picture to show that this is the character of God. That He does this. When He should have given wrath, what does He do? He shows mercy. Understand, another example would be like Jonah 4. So not just showing mercy upon His own people, but also showing mercy upon those people who are not yet His people. I'm thinking of the book of Jonah. Understand that all of God's mercy displayed toward the undeserving people of God, meaning the Israelites, was meant to foreshadow and drive home the point that Paul is making here. You look time after time, the Israelites, what do they do? They disobey God. What does God do? He shows them mercy. Think about this. When they're on their way out of Egypt, they're on their way trekking through the wilderness to Mount Sinai, what do they respond to God with? Well, we, we would be better off back in Egypt, right? We would be better off back in slavery. What, is, what does God do? He continues to show them mercy. He takes them to Mount Sinai. He says, if you would be my people, this is what it looks like to be my people. And they deserve not just 40 years in the wilderness after looking upon the promised land and, re- and refusing to enter into the promised land. Instead of wiping them all off the face of the planet, he says, you're going to be in the wilderness for some time. But what do they deserve? I mean, God has led them all this way. And God's plan is that they enter into this land. And what do they say? No, no, no. We're not going to do it, God. We refuse we have a better plan, and what does God do? What, what, what should God do? I mean, if I'm the judge, it's justice and wrath. Boom. Right? But what does God do? He shows them mercy. Go back even a little bit further with me. When Adam and Eve disobey God, they deserve not animal skins covering their nakedness and a life that is tough outside the garden. No, they don't deserve that, those things. They deserve the wrath of God. And yet, what does he do? He shows them mercy. All of this, I, at the very least, to show us 
Paul's point here in chapter 2. Because these are not just cute little stories for us to chronicle the life of God's people before Jesus. These stories give proof to, they give clarity and detail to what Paul brings to light here. And that is we were dead, wanting nothing to do with God, enjoying our slavery, turning our head from God at every chance, deserving justifiable wrath. That's where we are at. And then he says in verse 4, But God, who is rich and mercy, has saved your soul. But God. Go read a passage like Micah 7, still thinking Old Testament here. He delights in his mercy. Have you ever thought about that? God delights. He's not just, oh, I'm going to have to show them mercy again, them people. No, he delights to show us mercy. Paul speaks elsewhere on the free mercy of God in relation to this huge rejection of God by the people of Israel. Romans 9, 14-16, just very briefly. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. He's saying, it's my choice. And I'll have mercy here, and I won't have mercy here. I'll have compassion here, and I won't have compassion here. It's my choice. Then he says, verse 16, So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Thank God it doesn't depend on human will, because we were dead. We were goners. Another example now, kind of coming back to the New Testament, thinking about this idea of God's mercy giving opportunity to this. Think about Jesus and the unjust slave. All right, so the king, who represents God in the story, speaks of how he had mercy on a slave who owed him the unimaginable sum of 10,000 talents. Remember this story? Do you think Jesus just picked a big number to exclaim that we've been forgiven much? I mean, is that... You think that's simply Jesus' point? Well, you've just been forgiven a lot, so just keep that in mind. Let's think about this for a second. A denarii, right, was a day's wage for them at this time. A talent, one talent equals 6,000 denarii. That means one talent is 16 years of labor. Now, what does Jesus say? He's forgiven of. One talent Two talents, three talents maybe? I mean, that would be a lifetime, right? He says 10,000 talents. Do you know how long 10,000 talents would take you working seven days a week? It would take you 160 years. Is anyone living 160 years at this point? No. No one lived that long. That's Jesus' point. Is that you could never repay it. It has to be forgiven by mercy. You couldn't repay it. You couldn't do it. You need desperately the mercy of God. We, church, need desperately the mercy of God. Paul is teaching the same thing here. You have been shown mercy for more than you could ever repay. You were dead. You need the mercy of God. Now, I want to pause. Just kind of, if you're outlining, you know, I want to give like a side note here for just a moment. I think this would be helpful to many people here in our church. 
I want to talk just briefly for the moment, like the difference between wrath and discipline. Difference between wrath and discipline, just very briefly. Wrath is for the purpose of payment slash justice. Wrath is for justice. Discipline is for the purpose of sanctification. To bring us to be like Jesus. To make us more holy. Now, you can't have the discipline of God towards sanctification unless the payment and the justice has been served for your sins. And so the one has to come for, before the other, but I want you to see there's a difference. We have to be careful then. This is what I just want to encourage us with. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, we need to be careful that you don't confuse the two in our lives, that you don't confuse wrath with discipline. If we have been washed in the blood, church, I, I want you, if you consider yourself a follower, oh, look, look up here. If you have been washed in the blood of Jesus, then all of God's wrath towards you has been swallowed up at the cross. It's all gone. There's no, there's no more. It's done. Wrath is about justice. I know some of us feel, I do sometimes in my own life, like I'm under the wrath of God. And I know that some of you feel this way because sometimes you make other people feel as though they're under your wrath when you're upset. And church, if you've been washed in the blood, then what might feel like God's wrath is actually His mercy birthed discipline. He has no more wrath for you. Jesus took it all. I, I heard John Piper say at the Gospel Coalition Conference in Orlando this past year. I'm, no, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, it was there. He asked this question. He says, what do, what do we get in the gospel? Thinking in this terms of, of justice and so on and so forth. He goes, what do we get in the gospel? We get justice, right? Justice is served in the gospel, right? And John Piper says, no, wrong. In the gospel, we don't get justice. We get grace. We get mercy in this context. We don't get justice in the gospel. We get mercy in the gospel. So mercy-based discipline is not about justice. It's about sanctification. Guys, wrath leaves you where you are having just, simply making a pay, having just simply made a payment. Discipline, though, moves you down the journey towards holiness. And so when we think about this as children of God, this mercy that God has shown us, instead of showing us this wrath, that in the midst of that context, that He still has discipline for us. And let's not confuse the two. So then we as God's people can show mercy to other people. We can show discipline to our kids. So that's kind of done with that side note. And I want to talk to you for just a second. If you're, I'm not sure if you're a follower of Jesus Christ this morning that God's wrath still burns towards you. And I, and I don't say that to be mean or harsh or unkind. I say that to be loving and to be kind. That there still is a payment needed for your sin. And that one day, if you do not place your faith in Jesus Christ, that there will come a day where you will begin paying the price for the wrath of your sin. And it will take you all of eternity to do so. 
But this passage shows us that God is merciful. That God is merciful. And that there is forgiveness for those sins that comes through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. That God is merciful. And God has shown you mercy by having His Son Jesus take upon His shoulders the wrath, the payment due for His children, for His people. So I'd encourage you to throw yourself at the mercy of God this morning. If you want someone to talk to you after service, please let me know. Rusty, no, anybody will talk to them. All right, so kind of done with these side notes now, so I'm kind of back on the same track here with God and His mercy has given way to this redemption. So we were helpless, and yet God was merciful. But God did not just look upon His chosen with mercy. I want you to... Paul is incredible in his language here. It wasn't just for the sake of mercy that he saved us. Guys, the great creator, I want you to think about this. I think it's so easy just to wash across these words. Just to put emphasis here, the great creator of the universe, the sovereign, just, all-powerful God, not only has looked upon his people with mercy but He has rescued them because He loved them. Because He loved them. Because He loved us. Because He loved me. God's great love motivates God's redemption. In the Greek here, it's a a causal prepositional phrase, meaning because of His great love. Because of His great love, He's done this. A Christian. Christian, you're following Jesus, I want you to pause with me just a second. Put your pins down. I just want you to pause for just a moment and meditate right now on this thought right here. This thought. You were dead in sin, a hater of God. If you can't remember that time, just remember how tempted with evil you were this past week. Now, in that despair, in that despair, in that state, He loved you. He loved you. He loved you. Like he really loved you. In the midst of your wickedness, He loved you. In your darkest hour, He loved you. When you were utterly unlovable, He loved you. When you were naked in your shame, He loved you. Church, if He loved you then, can you see that in your struggle, With sin now having been covered in the blood, how he might still love you. He loves you. Romans 5, 7-8 says this, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God, see the juxtaposition again. See the contrast here. But God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners. Translated there, 
while we were still haters of God, we hated Him. He loved us. Christ died for us. And God shows His love in Christ dying for us. Love is an important concept in the book of Ephesians. If you look back to chapter 1, verse 6, it talks about the God, God the Father's love for Jesus. Jesus wasn't just something that God could dispose of so that he could rescue a few people. No, it was his son whom he had eternal, infinite, unconditional love for that he sent to the cross to die. Romans 5.5 5 says this, And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I want to encourage you that the focus here is not even just on God's love, but on the love of Christ. His love for His sheep that would lead Him to lay down His life for His people, for His kingdom, and ultimately for His own glory. So how might we think about this in application to our own lives? First of all, we should respond to death with mercy and great love. We should respond to death with mercy and great love. What is God doing? They were dead, following the course of the world. Everything that comes with that, how does He respond to it? With mercy and great love. It says something of our character, of God's work in us. It shouldn't take you long to look around and see outside of yourself and inside of yourself the death that still lingers around us. People who hate God, even our own lives, where we don't want to obey God, we don't want to follow God. But thinking about in terms of the people around us who, who are dead in their trespasses and sins, how does God respond to them? At least some of them. He shows them mercy. How can we? We don't know who God is going to save. So how do we respond? We should show people mercy. Show them the same mercy that God has shown us. When we look around, the people around us, the lives around us, they're no more wicked than you were or would be. I mean, I know like we as Christians tend to look around and go, well, at least I'm not like that person, or at least you would be. Show them mercy. Like, did, did God just come condemning us? When we were dead in sin? Like, what was he? No, we were already condemned. What's he do is he shows us love and mercy. And in the midst of showing us love and mercy, he proclaims to us the good news of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, how about, like, as brothers and sisters in Christ, how do we live out this with each other? Because there's still remnants of wickedness and death. In each of our lives, there's still bits and pieces that God has not eradicated yet. And we're supposed to then live together in community in the midst of a bunch of people who still have death all around inside their lives. The wickedness still in there. So how do we, how do we live together as the body in light of God's response to death? We do this by showing each other mercy and by showing each other love. And I want to stop, end with this comment here on this part, that you will only show mercy and love to those around you, to the extent that you know and worship the mercy and love shown to you. 
I'm reminded often just how little I understand and love God's mercy and love shown to me when I see myself wanting to withhold mercy and withhold love from people that are around me. Now, what I want to do, I want to give them justice. I want to make them pay. Thank God God didn't look at me and go, I want to make you pay. But he delighted in showing me mercy and showing love. So here's the formula. Like here's, if you're thinking mathematically, here's what it is. Our deadness plus God's mercy and love equals our rescue. What a deal. What do you have to bring to the table in this negotiation? Your deadness. Nothing. Matter of fact, if anything, you're bringing your negative. And then what's he do? Our rescue. We were made alive as we, were un- we are united with Christ. We were made alive. We were made alive as we are united with Christ. Ephesians 2, 5. He says this, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He did what? He made us alive together with Christ. Go back and read again verse 4 with me. It says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. God has taken every necessary step to reverse our condition in sin. Every necessary step to accomplish this. Christian, you were dead, but you are now alive. You were dead, and now you are alive. This idea of made alive implies the forgiveness of sins and liberation from these evil forces. Go read Colossians 2 later this week. But think about what he is juxtaposing here, what he is putting up next to each other. He's talking about these sins that we walked in and the slavery to these evil forces. But now you've been made alive. The implication here is that this stuff, this sin, these evil forces, this slavery has been taken care of. We were dead in our sins, slaves to the world, but now we have come to life with Christ. As He is resurrected, so have we been resurrected. It's only in union with Christ that death is vanquished and new life is received. And this is important. This is kind of allude to something here. I don't have time to explain it, but God's new creation, when He's going to make everything new, like this is a very integral part of God's new creation. When He gives us new bodies and He renews everything and rescues everything on this earth and makes all things brand new, what must be in place is these people who have been made alive together with Christ. Since we are united in his death, he's talking about this making, like putting us together with Christ. As we are united in his death, our flesh then is put to death. As we are united, so it's like in the mind of God, we are placed together with Christ. Think of it that way. 
And that as Christ dies and we're united with Christ, our flesh dies. This flesh we want to follow the course of. Like we want to obey this flesh. That is put to death as we're put to death with Christ, as we're put together with Christ. And then we're not just united in Christ's death, therefore putting to death our flesh. We're also united with Christ, put together with Christ in His resurrection. Our new spiritual life is birthed. Now, as we realize, you and I, after we were redeemed, we still have our old body. I mean, at least I still have mine. And uh, waiting on a new one. But for now, I have spiritual life, made alive. But God will finish the other part too. The flesh will be gone. I'll have a new body. But we just get a part of the puzzle now, a new spiritual life. Now, I want to pause for just a moment and address something here concerning baptism. Praise God that we have people in our church who are working through baptism, and what's its place in salvation? Water baptism here particularly, but I think the same applies to, to the idea of spirit baptism too that some denominations practice. And I know some, I think particularly of situations where people in our church are working through families who believe that baptism somehow saves, that baptism has some sort of saving effect. And I want you to think about this. In this context, what is Paul doing in Ephesians 1 and 2? Paul is giving and laying out really a complete doctrine of salvation from election to predestination to regeneration to new birth to redemption, to sanctification, and even glorification. It's all here in chapters 1 and chapter 2. And in all of that, he says nothing about baptism. I say that as a Baptist, right? Baptism, I think, is valuable. But Paul's not laying out what does faithful walking with Jesus look like, which I would include baptism in that, what he's laying out here is what does it mean to look, what does it look like to be redeemed, to be justified before God, to have your sins paid for. And that is not including baptism. I think Paul leaves it out on purpose because it doesn't belong there. It's an obedience thing. It's a, it's a symbol of what's happened in a believer's life. Otherwise, I think Paul would have put it in here. Because this Paul's purpose is he's laying out this doctrine of salvation. But I think what happens is in our culture, we're driven towards cheap grace. And that's what I would call baptismal regeneration. It's just cheap grace. It's I can get God's pardon if I just throw some water on my body. Paul speaks nothing of the sort here. God does not appropriate Jesus' death and resurrection to our lives by baptism. Paul leaves that out if that's the case. But how do these, it's faith. Because who's he, who's he referring to again back in chapter 1, verse 2? Sorry, 1, verse 1. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So these ones who have faith in Christ Jesus. So I just want to encourage you. This is an application of this part so far in Ephesians if you're working through this baptism thing or have family members that are working through that, 
and encourage you to study Paul's purpose here in chapters 1 and 2. All right, so done with that side note. Now back in. Christian, you were together. This is what Paul's picture is painting. You were together with the world, and now he's saying you're together with Christ. See Paul's, again, see Paul's juxtaposition. This is who you were following the course of the world, but now you are one with Christ. Not one with the world any longer. You're not one with the world any longer. Like Christian, you know that. You're not one with the world any longer. That's what it means to be together with Christ. The two don't go together. Rescue, the rescue from the plight described in verses 1, 2, and 3, and 5, the beginning of 5, comes through the union of believers with Christ's new life, His resurrection, and His exaltation to God's right hand, which we'll get to next week. And just as God used the might of His strength to raise Christ from the dead and seat Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, so He also has already raised and seated Christians together with Him in the heavenly places. He has rescued them with that same might of His hand. In verses 1-3, through three, it says that we were united with the world. What the world wanted, we did. The path the world took us was the path we gladly traversed. I want to encourage you, Christian, with this. Live like you're alive with Christ. Stop living like you're dead with the world. That would be just a very plain application of this text. Stop living as though you're united with the world and live as though you're united with Christ. For many of us, that's remembering in the times that we want to choose sin that we're no longer slaves to that. We're not united to that. We're united to Christ. And if we're united to Christ, then we have the power to overcome this. Another thought here in thinking about live like you're alive with Christ is this, where is your joy? Where is your hope? Why so sad? (laughs) Just practically. My goodness. You have all the reasons. You were dead and you're alive now. Stop acting like you're dead. You're alive. I mean, I know that's simple, but my goodness. Where's your desire for exchanging the death around you for life? Where's your desire to to see that death eradicated in the lives of those around you and even the remnants of death in your own life? You're together with Christ. You're united. Hear this. You're united with the King of the world. The one who overcame sin and death and Satan himself. You're united with Him. All right, so Paul takes this Old Testament concept, right? This is the concept. God's people deserving nothing but the wrath of God, these wicked, rebellious people. He then proclaims to us our likeness to them, that we were dead in our sin, and we were following the course of the world, wicked, rebellious people. Now, it was precisely in that moment this state of existence, this helplessness and hopelessness, that because of His great mercy and His great love, He made us alive. 
And I think Paul says all of that to say this. By grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved. For those of you who believe that it's by grace we've been saved, I hope that that phrase is not just something you just kind of flippantly say. By grace you've been saved. Why by grace? Because you couldn't do anything to deserve it. Look at the end of verse 5. He says, even when you were dead and even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. First of all, you've been saved from destruction. You've been saved from destruction. From eternally paying the price for your sin. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have been saved from destruction. This idea of grace is a particularly apt word to use for God's merciful, gracious, I'm sorry, saving is, is a particularly good word to use for God's merciful, gracious, and loving deliverance of believers from the desperate situation that Paul has just described in verses 1, 2, and 3. Now just as a quick side note, Paul often describes salvation as a future event, right? And, and also as an ongoing event. But here... Paul says salvation is something that is emphatically present for believers now. It's a reality now. He speaks of it as happening in the past. We have already been made alive with Christ. He's saying this has already happened. He says your salvation, second of all, your salvation then is a done deal. It's finished. It was completed. Now again, Paul also talks about how we're working out our salvation, and salvation is a future thing. But at this point, interestingly, Paul says it's a done deal. Both are true. There's a sense in which we are still working out our salvation, but there's also a sense in which the reality of our salvation in the mind of God is already a thing done. So I want to encourage you, for those who agonize over your sin, I want to encourage you, like fighting to overcome sin in your life, I want to encourage you with this. Keep fighting hard. Keep running the race. Don't stop and don't get lazy. Run hard. At the same time, believe in love that your salvation is done. It's finished. It's complete. It cannot be taken away if it's already done. Now you could wake up one day and realize I never was saved. But if you've been saved, it's done. It can't be taken away. Paul wouldn't have spoken of it in the past tense like he did. It's as surely done as Jesus sits next to the Father in the world's throne room. Your salvation is done. If it's done, you can't do anything to earn it either. Think about that. If it's done, why are you pursuing legalism? You you can't earn it. If it's already yours, no, now you live in light of it. Paul's language here draws attention to the resulting state of salvation, like it's done. The state, the result is done. The last thing I want you to see is that our death plus God's grace equals salvation. 
Our death plus God's grace equals salvation. Grace, the key theme in Ephesians. God lavished, if you look at like verses 6 and 8 of chapter 1 and verse 7, God lavished His grace on us in the Beloved, in Jesus, that the riches of divine grace are the ultimate cause of our redemption, verse 7. Paul carries on the mercy and love, this idea of mercy and love. He carries this on by emphasizing the absolutely free nature of God's action on behalf of His believers. That He acts freely. What do you mean by freely? What do you mean God acts freely on behalf of His people? Meaning there was no payment made from us, thereby getting God's great, God's work and benefit to us. So God saves us. What I mean by free grace is that God did it and we didn't pay for it. And of course, why didn't we pay for it? Because we couldn't pay for it. God acted out of no obligation whatsoever to us, but only out of His own gracious generosity. We did not pay for it because what does Romans 3, 23 and 24 says, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have nothing. We cannot pay for this. But what does he say in verse 24? We often forget 24. And are justified by His grace as a gift. What's a gift? A gift is something you get when you did nothing to deserve it. Otherwise, it's payment. If you did something to deserve what was given to you, then it's payment. You didn't do anything to deserve it and get it a gift. He says we're justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I think this is the highlight of chapter 2. I think right here, Paul just kind of inserts it right in the middle. And we're going to go on from this next week. And he says, by grace you have been saved. I think that's the highlight, if you will, of chapter 2. So I end with these last couple thoughts. Cast aside your self-righteousness. You can't do anything to earn it anyways. Depend on His grace. Cast aside your legalism. Brothers and sisters, if you're a follower of Jesus, it is by grace that you have been saved. And I want to read this to you here and we'll close. It says this, At just the right moment, when the darkness of our sin could grow no darker, and the fight of our rebellion could steep no stronger, when all we deserved was God's just wrath poured out on us because of His mercy and His great love, He marks us for keeping with the gracious shed blood of His own precious Son. By grace we have been saved. Amen? Let's pray and let's worship Him like we believe these words. Father, thank You for Your words to us this morning. Father, I pray that Your people are encouraged. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here that's not a follower of Your Son, Jesus Christ, that even in these next few moments that they would ask for forgiveness of their sins and believe that Jesus came to this earth and paid the price for their sins and died in their place. And that, Father, they will, I pray that they desire to submit their lives to you, Father, and follow your leadership. 
And Father, for those of us who are followers of Christ, that, that our following Him would be renewed this morning, even, even this day. And we would love your Son more and more. Father, let us know that, let us be reminded that if it weren't for you, that we would still be hopeless. Father, you have made us alive together with Christ. And by grace, we have been saved. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.